Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show, crunch climate talks in Glasgow as world leaders try to save our planet from catastrophe amid stark warnings. Working apart, we are forced powerful enough to destabilize our planet. Surely, working together, we are powerful enough to save it. We'll be live in the Scottish city as the climate clock ticks towards midnight. Later in the programme, Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald on the cost of fixing the climate and her party's change of heart on non-jury courts. We'll also be answering your questions as property tax deadlines loom large again. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, it's been a day of dire warnings and grim predictions about the future of our planet as world leaders attempt to reach a deal to combat the climate crisis. Well, let's go live to Glasgow in Scotland now and join our political correspondent, Gavin Riley, who's at that Crunch COP26 summit. And Gavin, tell us about the big message there today, stark warnings and this call to be ambitious in, in facing the climate crisis head on. Yeah, it's been fascinating to see all of this play out over the course of the day, Claire, because it's become pretty obvious that countries are already falling into what you might really consider as three camps. Firstly, there's the developed countries, largely from the, the West and from Europe, who all recognise that climate change is a significant problem, that it could be a cataclysmic disaster for this planet, and who have already committed not only to the principle, but also increasingly to some measures to try to do something about it. Then you have underdeveloped countries, largely in the Caribbean and in the Pacific, island nations in particular, who don't see this as an abstract problem who see this as a real existential threat because they are low-lying, they are island nations, they can see the sea rising and they can see their countries disappearing literally beneath them. Today we heard from the Prime Minister of Barbados who said that the idea of two degrees of global warming was a death sentence to some of those Caribbean nations. And then in the middle you have really the crunch ones that all of this summit is going to be about. The emerging economies, the likes of India, Brazil, China to some degree as well, all of which see climate change as something of a problem but aren't necessarily committed to doing very much about it, who are more concerned about their own economic growth than they are about decarbonisation. Today we had the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi finally committing that country to reaching net zero, but not until 2070, which is 20 years after the Paris Accord requires it to be hit. Of course, Ireland is there too, Gavin, uh, represented by the Taoiseach. Um, what are we bringing to the table? 
Uh, increasingly, it's not just about the measures, although we're going to hear more about the measures later in this week. It's also about money. And this is something the teacher did mention in a roundtable with some other world leaders today and something which I understand is likely to be the linchpin of his full speech to the plenary world leader summit tomorrow. And that's the idea that Ireland is not alone coming up with measures to try and reach its own targets for having emissions by 2030 and getting rid of them altogether by 2050, but also putting money towards helping other countries do that themselves as well. So we're going to be increasing our foreign aid budget to try and help other emerging countries decarbonise. Going to be apparently ramped up to 225 million euro per year by 2025. Now, it might only be a drop in the ocean as regards the $100 billion that is thought that needs to be put forward for the developing world, but it is at least a contribution that Ireland is proud of. And of course, Gavin, this is the backdrop to the big reveal here at home on Wednesday when the government uh, unveils the Climate Action Plan. That's right, and that's where the rubber, if you'll pardon the pun, is really going to meet the road, because it's all well having all of these principles and all of these commitments, legally binding as they are in Ireland, of having emissions by 2030. The question is, how are you going to go about doing it? And really, that's where you see the opinion polls show some divergence, that everyone wants Ireland to meet the targets, everyone wants action. But then the question is, how do you pay for that action and what actions are actually going to be necessary? And it is worth noting that when that plan is published later in this week, hearing tonight that it might possibly be Thursday instead of Wednesday, that it's only going to be a draft that is going to be put out to opposition parties to be given some thoughts and some scope for feedback about whether some sectors are being asked to carry more of the can. And interestingly, if you go back to yesterday at the G20, when emerging economies and the sorry rather the the, the world's largest economies all agreed to cut methane emissions by 30%. Today, the Taoiseach was asked if Ireland would follow suit on that, and he wasn't quite committal. And when you consider the relevance of methane for Ireland's livestock and what that's going to mean for farmers, the fact that he's not committing to that is quite an interesting signpost. Okay, Gavin Riley uh, joining us from COP26 in Glasgow. Thanks for that. And I'm joined now in studio by sustainability advisor and climate lecturer Ali Sheridan, Green Party TD Nasa Horrigan, and Social Democrats TD Jennifer Whitmore. You're all very welcome along tonight. Um, Ali, if I could start with you, um, you know, a big message of a dire warning and really the, the targets that have been set now, not even reaching. Um, the, the pace of global warming that we are facing. Is there optimism out there despite all that about what can be achieved, do you think? Yeah, I think COP is always a really interesting litmus test for us, where we are as a global society in terms of climate ambition. Uh, but we have learned from past COPs not to put all our, our climate eggs in one basket. So it's absolutely going to be important in terms of uh, shining a light on where we are in terms of that global ambition, where the commitments are to those other important elements like Gavin noted, like finance for the developing world, um, other issues around uh, how we're going to do emissions trading, uh, the, the Paris rule book that we've yet to, to finish writing out. Uh, but equally, thinking that a two-week conference can really get an answer to what is the most existential crisis of our time might be over egging what can be achieved here. I think the real work is going to happen when our leaders come home, when we know what the action plans are setting out for us. Um, and I think what's really important to, to remember about COP is this isn't the be-all and end-all of our climate journey. It's absolutely important, like I say, it, it gets uh, light on the issue, uh, but the real work does have to happen when we come back and we have to see that consistent ambition and commitment. And you're right, you know, we know now that the crisis and what it's asking of us is that we have to stay within that 1.5 degree ceiling and that current targets only get us to 2.7. And the big question when you're looking at all of this on a global scale, uh, scale is what, what the big polluters are doing. So we had Joe Biden up there today apologising for what 
Trump's actions, pulling out of the, the Paris Climate Accord and saying, you know, we're going to lead the way. Mm -hmm. But China didn't show up, Russia wasn't there. India set a target, putting it at 2070, which is decades away for, for a net um, zero future. With all of this, like, are reaching these global goals actually achievable before we even look to what we're doing in this country? Yeah, I mean, of course, we have to look at the, the global context. And yes, it's disappointing that some of those big countries' leaders aren't going to be at COP. We are seeing progress. It mightn't be as much as we want to see, but we are starting to see the trajectory go in the right direction. But I think, you know, from an Ireland point of view, we can't let uh, where others are on their journey stop us in terms of leadership here. We have a real role to play. Uh, we have been a long-term emitter ourselves. We punch above uh, our weight in terms of our emissions per capita. Uh, and we really need to show leadership here and commitment to what the science is saying with 1.5 degrees. And I suppose to keep looking at the what about China or what about Brazil before we move uh, is not a challenge we want to get engaged mm -hmm. in. It doesn't get us ready for the climate transition. It's not in our own interest. Yeah. NASA, how do you think Ireland sits in the mix? We do have this climate action plan coming this week, Wednesday or Thursday now. We're not entirely sure. But either way, it's, it's, we're very far behind, aren't we, on where we've, we've promised for so many years we're going to be. So how are we doing? I think that's fair to say. I think we've had a lost decade of climate action. You know, we, we have become a laggard in, in Europe and in, and in the world. And we had a decade where we should have been making progress. And in fact, what we did was increase emissions and we increased emissions across a number of sectors. So not only now do we have to set out targets that are meaningful for um, gatherings like COP, but we have to unpick some of the, the, the last decade's work. And I, and I think... Uh, I suppose to more, put a more hopeful slant on it, what Ireland is doing is really what you would like to see. What we're doing now is what you would like to see countries like, as you say, China didn't turn up and, and are, are not um, putting those kind of binding targets in it, but also places like Brazil um, and also Australia, who have said that they will meet net, net zero by 2050, but who are not going to bring in legislation. So what we would like to see and certainly where Ireland is positioning itself now, is that we would set binding targets in legislation which are not easy to work around or, or, or move around and, and that we will have to adhere to. And that's really where you would want to see all countries going. Um, at the moment... This is the plan, this is the climate action plan now you're talking about, NASA, which is going to be discussed um, by, by all the parties when, when it's unveiled later this week. Just on that point and just on the carbon budget that was announced, this is the budget for the next 10 years in terms of what emissions we must cut. Is there a chance when they're talking at COP26 about all these targets not even going near enough the right direction that we're going to actually have to go back to the table and cut all those emissions further? in order to reach the targets that we really need to set out beyond 2030. I think it's really important that people understand that this is a moving target and, and we are not fully um, aware of the, the kind of climate impacts that 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees will uh, bring about. And certainly from the very beginning in the 1994 conference and from the 2015 Paris Agreement, the nationally determined um, contributions were always something where you have to come back to the table five years later and reassess, are you doing enough? So does that uh, because mean the plan we don't changes. know that yet. The plan as unveiled Wednesday, that's going to change. It's going to evolve. Whatever targets are there for individual sectors, they may well increase 
Well, it's it's important to be clear that for uh, as national targets, as a, as a debate that we're having nationally, the targets are set out for the next five years in and around just over 4%. And for the five years after that, as we kind of yield the, 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 um, the benefits of the work that we've done, you'll go up to around 8%. But globally, do we then need to come to the table and assess as a global community, is that enough? That's, gonna, that's a okay. conversation Ireland is going to have to have with the rest of the world. Okay, it's all very ambitious, Jennifer, uh, and there's a, there's a long way to go. And there seems to be a fear of a public backlash around this and around the targets and what it'll mean for sectors and what it'll mean for individuals. Do you think people are in favour of that change? Or they are, which has been expressed quite openly, worried about how it's going to hit them in the pocket? I, I think people, I think Irish people, recognise the, the, the challenges we face, they recognise the risk of us not addressing climate. And I actually think that they want us to address climate. Um, I think how we do it is critically important though. And so whilst we know that we have the targets to meet, and I think everyone wants us to meet the targets, they have to be met in a fair manner and they have to be done in you know, what we call by a just transition essentially. So that means that those that are not in a position, whether financially or you know, capable to, to make the changes that we will require of them, that they are assisted in doing so by government. So whether that's a, a sector such as the farmers or the fishermen, um, or if it's you know, perhaps elderly people who, who can't afford to retrofit their home, all this work needs to be done in a fashion that brings those people along because what we can't have is a very divisive policy where people feel that you know, the burden has been put on them while big industries or other sectors aren't actually you know, uh, carrying their fair, their fair share of yeah. it. Is there an acceptance though when it comes to looking at the industries and targeting the industries? The fact of the matter is that say in the agriculture sector it is one of the bigger polluters in the country and so needs to be targeted. Um, it, it, do you think there's an acceptance of that? And do you believe that more supports need to be there in terms of bringing that sector along? Yeah, and this applies for all sectors. You know, 51% reduction by 2030 is transformative. It's not incremental changes. We're going to put a huge ask on every single one of our mm -hmm. sectors and industries in the coming years. So absolutely, we need to do a much better job at explaining what comes next, what those actions look like, what are the alternatives, how we've done the analysis, are the supports in place to make sure that the shifts happen. But we've got to ask about the cost of not doing anything here either. You know, the option of business as usual is just not on the table anymore. There is very real risks and very real cost to any delay mm. to agriculture and to every other industry in terms of climate action and we need to get moving. Okay, with that in mind I think we can listen to the view of farmers today and um, they were speaking to our Midwest reporter Eric Clark. We can have a listen now. If we had, if we had 40 cows to come back to 20, that's as simple as that and it, it is not viable. I'm extremely concerned about where all this is going to end up. Um, I just like if the government came forth and just told us exactly if they want to cull cows or uh, you know, depopulate or whatever they want to do. Can't keep going the way it's going. Everyone's going to have to put their shoulder to the wheel, I suppose, and change their ways of doing things. Um, there's a lot of talk about the herd numbers in the country. Yeah, and I think like an acceptance there that, you know, change is coming. It's just how that change is going to come about, NASA. But, uh, uh, you know, the group representing dairy farmers, the IC, uh, MSA, said the cost of changes to their production will mean the consumer will end up paying for it. Do you accept that, that we're going to face, you know, a, a rise in prices if we're going to see these changes? We're going to see it in the supermarket shelves. Well... 
Climate change is going to bring about more expensive food. That is the reality of it. Like we can see already that we have you know, land in this country that is flooding in a way that it never did before. And the idea that that wouldn't impact food prices is probably a nonsense. But I do think it's important to say that... Look, By how much? Like, is there an idea in this plan that you're outlining this week about... Because, you know, we do accept that change needs to happen, but, but what it's going to cost so people can prepare for that, so they'll know litre of milk isn't going to be what it used to be and how much it's going to go up by. I, I honestly don't think it's it's possible to say that yet because I, I don't think that we know what a 1.5 degree increase is going to look like in terms of the, the level of climate change that we're going to mm. see. And you're going to see a lot more storms, you're going to see a lot more flooding, you're probably actually going to see some drought even, even in kind of northern countries which will have a huge impact on our level of production. But you know Ireland is one of only three countries in the EU that increased our agricultural emissions in 2020. And I I think that we have to at some stage have a serious conversation that if we're saying that one sector is maybe not going to reach the targets that that are, are set down for them then they possibly need to start nominating what sector are they going to put those targets onto what are we suggesting here because actually you know we just did the budget process right and I noticed that all the alternative budgets that came from the opposition when they said they were going to spend something over here they said how they were going to raise the taxes over here now I think the sectoral thing has to be the same if you say we're not going to reach our targets we're not going to do it well who's going to reach those targets for you are you suggesting a congestion charge for example are you suggesting an aviation tax mm -hmm. who is going to make the change that you're not willing to make okay uh, would you accept that jennifer I think uh, you can hear in the voices of the farmers that they're actually very worried and concerned about what's coming down the road from them. And, and to be honest, you know, government has paid them and subsidised them to do the wrong thing environmentally for years. And now it looks they're, like they're going to have to pivot and shift how they operate. And you can understand why they would be you know, quite frustrated and angry in some instances about what it's going to mean for them. But I think the current situation for farmers is, is not sustainable. And the majority of farms aren't even uh, financially sustainable. You know, the majority of farmers farmers actually have second jobs. So the system that's in at the moment isn't good for the majority of farmers and it's not good for the environment. Now I do think there's a responsibility on government to work with those farmers to make sure that they can transition to a much better system where they can actually be more environmentally sustainable um, and still produce the food that we need. Um, and within that sector, like it's large and it's varied, there's this talk about um, family farms. Now others would say, you know, Family, you know, families run a lot of things in this country, not just farms. But that being aside, the smaller family farm versus the larger industrialised farms, the farms you're talking about that have received, um, you know, subsidies and that are producing on a large scale, that there should be a difference there in how this action plan treats them and supports them. Would you agree with that? Well, I think what, what we want is them to, to manage their farms in a sustainable way. And that means actually valuing things on their farms. You know, so whether it comes to, to biodiversity or the, the level of emissions that they have, actually or paying the for them. Or, yeah, you know, I mean, paying them to do that because we pay them to do the wrong thing at the moment. So we also need to have, a, I suppose, a cultural shift within government, uh, you know, that we actually mm. put biodiversity and we put climate change at the forefront of everything we do because it needs to cross every single sector in society. Just on this advice, and you are a sustainability advisor, so you, you would be helping with organisations and, and, and groups to see how we can, we can do this. One of the big things, a very practical level, will be around retrofitting and the cost of that, the availability of that, and whether that's realistic to ask people, yes, we want to be in warmer homes where we don't have to pay a lot for solid fuels to keep them warm. But you know what? It's going to take me three years and an awful lot of money to get that job done. 
Yeah. What do we do about that? Yeah, it's a big challenge. Uh, it's not going to be an easy one to crack, but we've got to come at it at all sides uh, and improve how we've been doing it. So that comes down to the communications around the benefits of it. This isn't just a measure just for the climate. This is about making your home warmer, cosier, mm. uh, more future-proof in terms of energy prices and energy volatility as well. But we've got to make that user journey, that access to the finance, to the information that you need to make the decisions about a retrofit uh, much easier. And I say that as someone who's gone through the retrofit process and I've and seen the very benefits. expensive. It was expensive, I suppose, in the context, but it depends what you're comparing it to, you know, and, and I suppose it depends what your means and your accessibility are, but equally that long-term savings, so the payback period, you know, now looking at what energy volatility prices are doing, uh, you know, being in a position to be able to withstand it a little bit better, but we do have to make it much more accessible. We, of course, have to think about energy poverty and protecting those yeah. most in need with retrofits, um, but, you know, retrofit is only starting to ramp up. It's, it's a huge target that we have in the coming years. It's going to play a vital part in terms of helping up get our emissions down but there's massive opportunities mm. about this from a homeowner's point of view and from new industry new jobs point of view in terms yeah. of the industry itself the target it. around it is 500,000 houses by 2030 NASA like that's a huge number of houses mm. there will be people who say yes with some grants I'll be able to afford it there'll be others who simply can't so what are you going to do for those homeowners who also can't afford the bills they're currently paying well, there, there is a huge target and it is um, generally, a, a, you know, kind of a, a huge ambition across the country. But we do have a, a, a poor building stock in terms of insulation. Um, I think that, you know, like if you, if you look at this year, for example, there was um, 368 million for energy and retrofitting. And it's going to have to be year on year. I have to say the retrofitting issue um, suffers from the same thing as, as house building is that we have a lack of capacity. So one of the things this year was to try and, you know, get apprenticeships through, get training through because one of the good things about the, 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 you know, the climate action package is that there's lots of jobs coming you know, through the, the climate. Um, who's going to fill them? Well, exactly. But I mean, look, the, it, they're skilled jobs and they're well-paying jobs and they're jobs that, you know, we will still be retrofitting buildings probably well into the, into the 2030s. So, you know, it is a long-term project, but, but there, there is kind of development and, and opportunity there for people. And it's something that actually, funny enough, will happen all around the country. So it's, it's one of those things that won't be a centralised in Dublin okay. job. They'll be all over the country. Mm -hmm. OK, and um, just in terms of this bill coming out, because it is going to be discussed... Um, right across uh, the chamber. Um, Jennifer, will your party be supporting it? Are there measures in it that you would say, no, we can't support that aspect? Because you'd have a fair idea of, of what's likely to be unveiled this the, week. Well, we'll wait to see what, what comes out this week. But I mean, I think the risk with, uh, with what we're trying to achieve, even, you know, we're talking about retrofitting, is we have all these grand plans and there is, you know, big targets set. It's actually meeting them, I think, is going to be the challenge. And, you know, to say 500,000 houses by 2030, when only last year, we, we did 5,000, you know, so the actual implementation of these plans is very, very slow. There's a two and a half year waiting list for retrofitting. Now, I'm also going through retrofitting at the moment as well, and even getting people to come mm. on site to do it is really difficult. So what difficult, do you do about that? And it's expensive. So you have to actually invest in apprenticeships. Um, at the moment, there's been four um, apprenticeships uh, retrofitting hubs set up across the country. We need them in every okay. single ETP. They need to be right across the country, ensuring okay. that when people come out of school, that these are viable jobs for them. 
we need to make sure that we invest properly and fully in this. I mean, if you look to Italy, they've actually, they're mm. doing the full cost of retrofitting at the moment. They're actually giving 110% of the cost of retrofitting to each home because it's very, very expensive. And unless you can see a very quick payback, I think the majority of people in this country okay. won't so be able funded. to afford to do it. Okay, uh, quickly, just going back to the optics around this event, because look, it's very much on the agenda, COP26, all the world leaders there, but much has been made about how they've got there. So for example, Boris Johnson went from London to Glasgow, by plane today. So, you know, talking about all of this talk, but the actions not necessarily meeting it, is a big thing when we're sitting at home wondering what, what we, what we, how we pay for this and how we do it. Yeah, I think we need to uh, differentiate between carbon footprints and handprints at, at events that are important as COP. And what I mean by that is the footprint, yes, it matters how you get there. Yes, people are watching and you should be setting a good example. But what's more important is the leadership that's shown in COP around future commitment, country and global commitment that's hopefully going to get us on this trajectory to 1.5. So hopefully not focusing too much. You let them off on, the hook, will you, on that one, Ali? If we can get a good agreement. If we can, okay. and, then, and then hopefully we'll have uh, more options to get to COP in more sustainable ways in the future. Okay. Okay, my thanks to my panel tonight, Ali, Nasa and Jennifer. And next, we're joined by the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou Macdonald. So stay with us. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Well, I'm joined now by the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, after her party's weekend Ordesh. You're very welcome along to the programme, Mary Lou. Um, I want to start today with the big issue that we were discussing in the earlier part of the programme, and that's on climate. It's not just, of course, a big issue today and for the next few days, but it's facing our generation mm -hmm. and generations to come. Uh, what do you make of what you're hearing in Glasgow and the urgency to act? Well, look, uh, I think everybody has a desire to see, you know, a level of urgency and delivery that moves beyond rhetoric and that, that creates kind of a credible sense that we are appreciating and responding to the scale of this challenge. Because, you see, it's not just about individual behaviour, mm. although I think all of us want to play our part and I think that's good that you try to be the change that you want to see. But the truth is that this is a real systemic crisis and it calls into question the nature of globalisation as we have experienced it. Uh, the that, that debate uh, between free trade versus fair trade, it raises all kind of questions around the strength of market forces and how they have decided and dominated so much. 
Um, and these are things that we need to get to grips mm. with. So this is a domestic agenda. It's also a global agenda. And it's very clear the state has to lead here. And I heard your discussion earlier with the, with the panel um, around retrofitting and public transport and all of the things that were agreed we have to make happen. Yeah. And the truth is that in the absence of very substantial, very determined state action, that's not going to happen. I mean, to retrofit your home, if you can put your hand on that kind of money, great, by mm. all means. Lots and lots of families can't and won't be able to. And then the final thing um, is this. There has to be a consistency of approach from the state. So, for example, you were talking about farmers earlier on and agriculture. Every sector of Irish society is going to have to lift this load. But we have to be fair here. Like, it would be absolutely farcical for the Irish state to take out the big stick to farmers to Irish farmers on the one hand and then go and sign on for a trade deal like the yeah. Mercosur deal, which now envisages... the trade deal, of course, hasn't been flooding. signed up to No, yet. no, no, of course, but which envisages flooding the European market with uh, Brazilian beef. That clearly would be absolutely okay. detrimental in climate terms and would make no sense okay, domestically. But would you accept that when you're looking at the biggest polluters, when you're looking at the sectors and how we're going to meet those emission targets and we see what we have to do over the next 10 years and it's all being backloaded to 8% cuts going right up to 2030, there's a huge job of work to do. Absolutely. And in doing that, you have to target sectors and it has to be, agriculture has to be one of them. Of course. Listen, so, we've been arguing for a long time. I've never advocated, we have never promoted this kind of hyper-intensification of agriculture. That was a mistake. We have always advocated okay, so that now? the farm, family farm, and by that I just don't mean just businesses run by families, I mean that notion of smaller scale uh, mm. agriculture with traceability and all of that, is the way to go. So one of the things we've been suggesting, and my, my colleague Matt Carty has been championing, is the idea of a commission on the family farm. We have to decide what form, what model of agriculture and food production will the state promote? And then, by extension, what approach will the common agricultural policy take at a European level? Because, as somebody remarked earlier on, and it's true, the state and the European system has encouraged intensification and mass industrialisation of agriculture. People have pushed back against that, not least farmers, smaller farmers, and now it, it turns round that the approach taken by the state and by international force was actually wrong. And we find ourselves in this climate catastrophe. So we need to and get they, back to basics. Yeah, and they plan on doing that, which will be outlined in the Climate Action Plan. Well, well I but hope one, it will, yeah. Yeah, but one thing around it now, and, 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 and you, you said about it in your Ordesh speech, you wouldn't increase the, the carbon tax. Mm -hmm. You would, in fact, stall its introduction. When we're in this climate crisis, where we're at right now, do you think that's the best battleground? Do you think that's the best point to fight on? Like, it's a, whatever we think about the cost of it, it's a clear signal from a state that it, it wants to do something but you see, about I think climate it, but action. But you see, with all respect, I think it's the wrong signal and I think it's been used as a cop-out. And when I listen to the rhetoric from government when pressed as to their climate agenda, they reach for the carbon tax as kind of the catch-all demonstration of their seriousness. 
the truth is that a hike in carbon tax at this time just makes a difficult situation unbearable for countless but families. But don't we have to do it? No. You know, it's signed what, up what to. We and have actually, to we've do... reneged on promises for doing it for but years. No, no, no. What we have to do is reduce our emissions. Increasing a carbon tax on somebody who lives in a cold, older house... Um, is is not going to do anything other than put them under more financial pressure. It's not going to change their behaviour. It's not going to reduce emissions, but it will make their bills higher. So it's the wrong way to go at this. Mm. I absolutely accept that we need to reduce our emissions, but I don't believe that by targeting families and workers and individuals who are already crushed with the cost of living crisis, upping their bills at this time is the right approach. I just don't see that that gets you to reduced emissions. OK, so who does pay for it? Well, I mean, the, the state has to lead. So How? the state has to pony up for... The, the likes of retrofitting of homes, building of homes up to the, the, the most modern um, and sustainable uh, standards, um, has to ensure that investment is made in terms of food production and the model of agriculture, and then, crucially, public transport. I mean, we have to get better at procurement, we have to learn how to deliver these projects on time and on budget. So, for example, we need a rail link to Navan, there's rail there, there's no trains. Mm. We need the Western Link, we need the Ross Lair to Waterford. I could li list them out for you. Those projects need to be delivered. Yeah, the reason they haven't been delivered, arguably, is they haven't budgeted for them. The money isn't there. And a lot of the things that you're talking about, say retrofitting, so every home in the country is ret retrofitted by the state. Is, is that how you'd see it? Well, look, every home doesn't and require... how much is that going to cost? Well, every home doesn't require retrofitting. Um, but older housing stock has to be retrofitted. A lot of the um, local authority housing stock, and I've seen it with my own eyes, you've probably seen it yourself, um, is old, it's in bad shape, it, whether it's in flats or homes, and it needs to be retrofitted, and the state has to make that investment. And you've asked who pays for it. Ultimately, all of us pay for it because we pay our taxes in some form or other, and, of course, people who are in local authority accommodation pay pay their rent. So we are in, all of us are in this together. But we... I, I'm making the point to you, Claire, that the idea that by levying a carbon tax that that is the silver bullet for all of this. That's just wrong. Mm. Are we I, back I don't to see. that argument, though, if we, pay, if we all pay for it, we're paying for it by taxes, the carbon tax is being used to ring fence for these sustainability projects. Like, so when we are paying those taxes, they're going towards those retrofitting there grants have, and other there projects. There have been now in excess of 30 energy price hikes just in the last year. That's the reality. So you see if you're a family that's just making it and just getting by, I believe that it is an unfair imposition on you for the state to hike your energy bills up further. I think it's wrong. I think it's unfair. And let me repeat, it's not going to change your behaviour unless your behaviour is that you're going to switch off your light or not heat your Should home. Should it come at and some that's, point? That's not, right that's now, not a, right now when we're talking about the cost of living and, and those energy bills you're talking about, would you agree that a carbon tax or a levy should come at some point? If, it may be something if you're in government, you're a Taoiseach, that you have to do. Well, look, if, if, you were, if, if we lived in a different reality... And if homes were retrofitted and energy efficient and all of these ifs and ands, of course your decision-making process looks different. But I can only deal with what's in front of me now. And what's in front of us now is a cost-of-living crisis, 
energy pri price it, the costs that are crucifying people. I know people who are, I'm sure are watching this show who are dreading their energy bills come now November, December, January, into the cold months. Are you going to support this climate action plan that's going to be unveiled I want this to, week? I want to see it first. I want to see what kind of plan it is. I want to see, do they actually get into the, the systemic, the core issues that need to be addressed? And as I said to you earlier, I want to see what are they saying in terms of trade? And I want to know what's okay. the state and the government's uh, position as regard Mercosur and other trade mm. arrangements. Um, and I want to see what they have to say positively about food production. I want to see how they're going to assist and incentivise okay. people rather than penalise them. I think we all, we all want to see that, so we'll, yeah. we'll wait and see what's in the bill. Now, um, your decision, and it was one of the headline statements, I think, that came from the Ordesh at the weekend, was uh, to support non-jury courts mm -hmm. in exceptional circumstances. It is a big departure for the party, isn't it? And what was the thinking behind that decision when you've held to it for so long on very strong principles, yep. principles that haven't just been supported by you, but by the likes of Amnesty, Penal Reform Trust, the UN, um, Irish Absolutely. Council of Civil Liberties yep. and others. Yep. But you made this statement and why did you do it now? So um, it, is, it is a big decision and it was debated at the Eurodesh. And let me say um, we, we hold to still uh, a number of things. Firstly, that the current system that we have, emergency powers that have been on the books for 80 years and a system where you're renewing these emergency powers annually is not the way to go. Um, we also believe that, of course, the right to a, a jury trial is a very important right and should only be overridden in the most exceptional of circumstances. So our policy affords for our suggestions, our options around anonymised juries, methods to protect jurors mm. and so on. But we do accept the reality that in exceptional circumstances, particularly when you're dealing with gangland crime, which has wreaked havoc across mm. so many communities, that you have to allow, in exceptional circumstances, the option of non-jury uh, trials. The, what needs to change is the way in which that call is made as to whether or not there is a non-jury trial. At the moment, there is not sufficient judicial supervision of that. And that's been the issue that the UN, mm. Amnesty and others have been particularly critical well, of, and that needs to be Was it coming corrected. up on the doorsteps? Is it an election concern for you? I represent the north inner city of Dublin, and at first hand, the communities that I represent could tell you um, the, the havoc, the hardship, the fear that so-called gangland has brought so to the it was fine that, It was that issue you were hearing people, about. People wishing to feel safe, people saying, well, you know, if it were a thing that you were called to jury duty and if it were a case that it was a gangland-related matter, how secure would you feel serving as a juror? Of course, those matters have been discussed with me. And in the last election... We called for a review of the emergency provisions out of the court system. Martin Kenny, our spokesperson on justice, worked with Charlie Flanagan at the time. The review is now underway. There hadn't been a review in okay. 20 years, Claire. That will be published in the springtime. I hope it'll be progressive and I hope it'll ensure that rather than having an ad hoc emergency scenario that we will actually have a mod modern fit for purpose system okay. with absolutely scrupulous judicial oversight. Well, one example there I suppose where the party has changed its principles in order to be popular that's something no. 
it is something though that, that that's the tag that's been given. You, you'll know it yourself well, I think, well, about I... the populism and the populist party. What do you think when you hear that? Well, listen, I think to suggest that a party's deliberations and proposals around having a fit-for-purpose modern judicial system to label that as populist is, fr is frankly ludicrous. And uh, people have a right to feel safe in their homes, on their streets, in their communities. And you see political leaders and political representatives like me and my colleagues, we have a duty to do everything we mm. can to make sure that happens. Furthermore, when the Good Friday Agreement was signed now 23 years ago, the understanding was, the agreement was, that the emergency powers would be dispensed with. That has not happened yet. That needs to happen. So we are looking for an end to the emergency provisions okay. and all that goes with it and a new dispensation. And in that position, we are very much in line with the thinking of other human rights yes. uh, organisations. But, but just on that particular tag around populism, and it's something that you've been charged with, it, it, you know, you hear it all the time from Fine Gael, from Fianna Fáil, from government, that, you know, there's, it, you're a populist party mm. and it's really easy to sit in opposition without being there in power, making those difficult decisions, making those challenging decisions. Is that something that you're keenly aware of when you're standing where you are in the polls, knowing that chances are you may be in government well, and you will have to make those calls? Some of the, you know, those that make that charge and say well, it's very easy for them being in opposition, absolutely did everything within their power to make sure that we were in opposition. I mean, they clubbed together to keep us out of government. So it's a little bit rich with all due respect for them to say, well, there's Sinn Féin sitting in opposition. In the last election, I made it clear that we were contesting and asking people for the chance to be in government, to be, to be at the decision-making table. That remains my position. When we go to the next election, we will ask people in all humility to give us the chance, and then it's down to the electorate. But th this business of labelling anybody who challenges you in an effective way and to disregard them as populist or whatever badge you wish yeah. to attach, it doesn't cut any ice with me. The fact is we have a government that's out of ideas, out of time, okay. and is very touchy, therefore, when they're challenged on, on their v obvious failures. Very briefly before we go, Nyack has approved booster vaccines for healthcare workers this evening. What do you make of that decision? Uh, at last is, is all I have to say. Um, I'm glad that decision has been made. I'm... I'm I'm mystified as to why it's taken so long. To me, it was very obvious we need a comprehensive booster programme. And, of course, our health workers at the front line obviously uh, needed to be prioritised in that. But, look, it's good that the decision has been made and now that needs to get uh, rolled out. And decisions like that shouldn't take so long. I mean, delay causes hardship okay. and can cause cost lives. OK, we'll leave it there. Um, my thanks to you, Mary Lou MacDonald. Now, coming up next, what to look out for on your property tax return. Stay with us. Property tax deadlines are looming and I'm joined now by tax expert and financial consultant Paul Merriman. Paul, very many thanks for joining us in studio tonight. So today, 
is the day that you have to get a value on your home. Yes. Tell us about what that entails, what people must do and, and how to go about doing it. Yeah, well, basically, Revenue are giving you three options here, or three things to do, basically. Number one is to value your property at today's date. And you have up until the 7th of November, Claire, to do that. So once you go up with your valuation, you put it into the system and then Revenue are going to tell you how much tax you have to pay. And you don't have to pay that tax until next year, until January 2022. Now, if you want to, you can pay it earlier, but you can also defer it into next year. I think the big confusion that might be out there is that when you get the letter from revenue, if you do receive the letter from revenue, uh, when you go on to the revenue system, there will already be an estimated value for your house. I think this is where the confusion is coming from. And people are getting worried about, is it undervalued, is it overvalued, and what happens if I overwrite the revenues estimate, which you can do. System, in fairness, the revenue is very easy to use. It's very user-friendly. So it'd be recommended that you can obviously I, change it if you should. You know, should you do that? So say maybe many letters that have gone out to people have valued their homes at, at one price, but we know the way uh, house prices are rocketing at yes. the moment, that actually it could be worth today an awful lot more. Yes. So should you essentially value your, your property at a higher price, that means you will actually pay more as well. Well, you wouldn't be valued at a higher price. You have to just get the value of the property. Uh, so the best place to do that is um, on the PPR.ie. So that's the property price register. So anyone can go on there, put your address in, and you're going to find a house similar to yours, hopefully on the road, around the corner. Uh, and that's your estimate that you're going to do. And you're going to put that in. So you're not kind of guessing figures. You're going to look at the PPR. And if you want to, you can actually get, I don't recommend people do this necessarily. You've got daft.ie, myhome.ie, that can help you as well by just looking for valuations in the area. You can, if you really are, worried about this, get a local agent out to value it and give you the valuation. Now, to me, I think that's a waste of money. Yeah. I don't think you need to do that. Yeah. But if you are paranoid about it. What's the fear there when you say you're paranoid? So if you pay that bit more because you, you, your house is yes. valued at more than it's estimated, or if you decide, no, I'm actually going to pay the band that was the estimate that was put yeah. to me. What, what's the concern there? Are you liable? Like, who yeah, well, go well, after well, if you you're going to overpay tax, you can get it back. But this tax is going to be taxed for the next four years. You're setting your property price today and it's going to be used for the next four years. So whatever band you're paying today, that's going to be set for 22, 23, 24 and 25. So you don't want to be overpaying for the next four years. So it's very important that you actually kind of spend a few minutes at least trying to find out what the valuation is. But that's all this takes. It's just a couple of minutes. The big thing here for people from a paranoia point of view is probably if they undervalue. So let's say you think your house is worth 350 and revenue come back and say, no, I think it's worth 500,000 euro mm. and you're out. Uh, but the charges What's on the property tax... Yeah, they're going to hit you with the increased bill. There can be penalties. They're saying there's a penalty of up to 1,000 euro if you are kind of messing with the system as opposed to undervalue. But they're very compliant. I mean, property tax, let's not forget, it's nothing new. How we're declaring it is new. It's been around since 2013. Uh, and they have 97% of compliance when it comes to property uh, tax. So like I said, it's nothing new. People have been paying it for a while. Okay. But it's just this one thing about putting the valuation, I think has everybody scared or nervous, like I said. But so they, they haven't sort. really been chasing after and the compliancy rates have been high up yes. until now. The yeah. difference this time is there's a whole load of new homes in the bracket that weren't there yeah, before. Yeah, that's a great point, actually, Kay, there is. Yeah, so if you bought a property between 2013 and up to today's date, and it was a new builder from a developer, you didn't have to declare, you'd have to pay your property tax, and now you do. So there's about 100,000 of those people that haven't actually paid any property tax yet, and they're coming into that net now for revenue to capture. Uh, so yeah, that's going to be new for them, they're going to have to register. But again, when people get the letter from revenue, you should have got a letter by now from revenue or property owners, over about 1.4, 1.5 million letters going out, about 900,000 
thousand are going to post and the remainder are going to be in your my account section of revenue.ie. What is that? So my account, if you're a PEY worker, for argument's sake, or if you're uh, self-employed, you're going to be using the Ross system. It's where you should be looking for your taxes over the last number of years. So it's where your taxes are calculated for you. So it's the my account section. You go into revenue.ie, just go into the my account section. All you have to do is put in your PPSN number and you get a code to put in. And you can actually go back over the last four years, which is brilliant. If you're thinking about paying tax and you don't like it, you can also reclaim your taxes back there. So okay. for argument's sake, medical expenses over the last four years. So if you're doing this correctly, revenue might owe you money rather than you just paying the local property taxes. Oh, that would well, always be the hope, would wouldn't it? would be a great benefit. But uh, yeah, so that's where people should go. If you haven't got the letter yet, make sure you go on to the revenue.e and into my account and see how they corresponded to you through there. That's okay. really important. Okay, uh, exemptions. Um, are there exemptions for certain properties that they just yeah. don't have to pay because yeah, there's, of problems? There's four exemptions. I would recommend everybody because they're quite detailed to go onto the revenue.ie site and look at the exemptions. You go onto just even Google local property tax, you're going to find a lot of information on the revenue site. And the citizen information page is brilliant as well. But on the exemptions, the likes if you have been uh, affected by pyrite or mica or if you have a long-term illness and you had to leave the property. Now, it's not. I heard some commentators saying it's unoccupied properties. It's only unoccupied properties if you have had to leave the house due to an illness or a long-term kind of uh, illness that you, you couldn't okay. live in the property. So there are a very limited number of exemptions, but they are there as well. And there's some hardship exemptions as well that revenue will look after if you contact. What I encourage everyone to do, if they have any queries, is just go on to the revenue. Already. Don't ring them. Sorry, you can, but I wouldn't advise it. They're getting mm. 10,000 calls a day. Only 30% of people have seemingly done this. Uh, it's the first today. So I think you're going to be on hold for a long time. But if you go on to, again, the My Account section, you can just put in a query and they're very quick and very fast to get back to people. Right, okay. So that's the best thing to do. Get online. Get online. Remember or your login because that's another whole thing. You, you know, in fact, they're very quick at resetting the passwords as well. The revenue side okay. has come a long way over the last number of years. They've made it really easy for people to declare this one. Yeah. Probably just this one. I'm, su I'm sure they have. Yeah, they Paul have, Merriman, yeah. thank you for no all those nuggets of advice as that deadline looms. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. To all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.